0: got your Bible, let me invite you to take it and turn with me to the third chapter of Acts, the book of Acts chapter 3. We want to continue on in our study of the book of Acts. Uh, you know, the gospel of Jesus Christ results in a changed life. That is the consistent message throughout the New Testament. It's been seen countless times again and again all throughout church history Uh, The gospel, in the life of a person who believes it, it results in a changed life. And there's something about a changed life that really fills the mind with wonder. You know, I love to read biography, and in particular, I love to read Christian biography. And uh, one of our men in the church recently shared with me a copy of a book that he had. It was a biography on uh, Mitsuo Fuchida who was lead pilot for the Japanese during the attack on Pearl Harbor. Um, December 7th, 1941, you know that that is a day that will live in infamy. It was Mitsuo Fuchida who led the first wave of 353 Japanese warplanes that attacked the American naval fleet stationed there in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. And it resulted in 2,403 casualties. But it was Fuchida who gave the now infamous signal, Tora, 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 which was the Japanese signal to attack. And so the next day, the United States formally entered World War II and declared war on the empire of Japan. Now, Mitsuo Fuchida really served Japan all throughout the war. And on numerous occasions, he barely escaped death, such as when he had to have emergency surgery on an aircraft carrier rather than flying his plane um, at the Battle of Midway. Or when he should have been in Hiroshima on August 6, 1945, the day that the atomic bomb was dropped, but he received orders at the very last minute that put him in another city. Later on, he said this. He said, life for me had no taste or meaning. I had missed death so many times, and for what? I wondered what it all must have meant. Well, after the war was over, there was a number of Japanese military personnel who were tried for war crimes uh, relating to their treatment of American POWs. Well, Fuchida was called on to testify, but he felt that really the trials were a sham because he harbored resentment against the United States, he felt like the Americans had treated the Japanese POWs just as unfairly. But it was then that he met his former flight engineer who he thought died at the Battle of Midway. But instead, this guy had been taken prisoner. And rather than telling Fuchita a story of abuse and torture by the Americans, uh, this guy told him about a young American woman by the name of Peggy Koval, who treated him with kindness, even though the Japanese had murdered her missionary parents in the Philippines. Now, this was something that absolutely shocked Fuchida when he heard about it. He had a Shinto background, and in Shinto thought, the code of the warrior not only permitted revenge, but demanded it. And yet this woman had declined revenge and offered undeserved compassion to Japanese prisoners. And so it was at that point that Mitsuo Fuchida began investigating the claims of Christianity. And so one day while he was waiting at a Tokyo railroad station, someone handed him a gospel tract that told the story about another POW who came to faith in Jesus Christ uh, by reading the Bible in captivity so in September of 1949, after reading the Bible for himself, Mitsuo Fuchida, the one who led the charge, the attack on Pearl Harbor, he became a Christian. Wow, it's an amazing story. And, and he said this of his life. He said, looking back, I can now see that the Lord laid his hand upon me that I might serve him. And it was an amazing story of life change. Listen, we could go on and on and on and talk about stories of the lives of people who've been radically changed and transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. Every single believer, if you're a Christian, you have a testimony, you have a story to tell. Now, the details of your testimony might be different than the details of my testimony. You may come from a different background than I've come from, but there's a common thread that runs through every Christian's story And that common thread is this. I was once lost in my sin, but Jesus Christ came to where I was. He rescued me and saved me by his marvelous grace. And that's the common thread of every single Christian testimony. The gospel is the good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ to reconcile broken and helpless sinners unto himself. And that's exactly what we read about in the book of Acts. Now you remember that the second chapter of Acts closes with an amazing picture of the early church. Uh, It's a picture in which the Lord is adding daily to the number of believers, those who were being saved. And the Bible says that the believers had devoted themselves to doctrine, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And salvation in Christ and the indwelling spirit meant a new way of life for these believers. They no longer lived for their own interests, but rather they lived um, to serve the interest of the one who gave his life for them. It was him now living in them through his Holy Spirit, and that made a remarkable difference in their life. In fact, if you go back to chapter one for a minute, remember how Luke has introduced this second volume, this follow-up volume to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, He says in the very first chapter, uh, the very first verse of chapter one, he says, in the first book, I've already dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so the idea is Jesus is still working. His redemptive work is over, but through the person of the Holy Spirit, God is now at work in the lives of the apostles and in the life of the early church. And so because the believers have the Spirit of Christ on the inside, they reach out to others just like he did. They see the value of one just like he did. You remember Jesus said that he had come to seek and to save the lost. Well, now The church makes that their aim in life as well. Chapter 2 closes by mentioning the many who were being saved, but chapter 3 begins by focusing on the one. Because we open up chapter 3 of the book of Acts and we find out how uh, Peter and John, on their way to the temple to pray, they have an encounter with just one person. The church that had met together and were gathered together at the close of chapter 2, in chapter 3, they're the church scattered. And as they're scattered, they're sharing life-changing hope with those around them. So I want to preach from this thought this morning, the power of God to change lives. The power of God to change lives. If you're there in Acts chapter 3, let me invite you to stand with me as we read this text this morning. I really just want to read through verse 10. And I know that's about as far as I'm going to get. But the Bible says that Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, would have been three o'clock in the afternoon. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Now look at this. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. That word amazement there in verse number 10 uh, translates a Greek word, ecstasis. It's the same word we get the word ecstatic from. The idea is when the crowd looked at this guy, when they looked upon his life, and they knew that he was the guy that every day he sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, uh, crippled, there's a miracle of change that's uh, been brought about in his life, And the crowd is ecstatic about it. They can't explain it. And that then provides an opportunity for the gospel to be preached. So the power of God to change lives. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you're a God who changes lives. And so, Father, I pray that you would speak into our hearts and lives in a very powerful way this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Aren't you glad that you're not just a nameless face in a crowd with the Lord Jesus? Um, Jesus looked on the crowds with compassion, we read that, He, he saw the crowds as being sheep having no shepherd, but it was not simply crowds that he was interested in. Jesus changes the lives of individual people. And here in this third chapter of Acts, we're really introduced to a broken man who was desperate and in need of some change, but the change that he received was not the change that he asked for or expected. And really, if you want to see what Christianity looks like in in action, then you don't have to look any further than Acts chapter 3. Because it's here that we see the faith of the early church. It's on display as they're reaching out to the world around them. And it's the spirit of God living in Peter and John who leads them to stop what they're doing and reach out to a man who had a great need. And as a result, this man has an encounter with the power of God that forever changes his life. Now in this chapter, there are 26 verses in this chapter, there's the miracle that we read about in the first 10 verses, uh, what I'm calling a profile of a changed life, But then you get into verse number 11 and that leads to the platform that a changed life is given. Because this man and the miracle of healing in his life really provides an opportunity for Peter to preach the gospel to the crowd. And then you get to the close of chapter three and you read all about the potential of a changed life because Peter extends an invitation to the crowd. He says, repent, turn back from your sin. Uh, Place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and your life can be changed also. So I want to look at this really over the next couple of weeks, but for the time remaining, I really want to zero in on these first 10 verses, and I want you to notice with me the profile of a changed life. As you really consider the life of this lame man who experiences a miracle, the power of God changes his life. And chapter three begins with Peter and John going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. And the imperfect verb tense that's used here uh, suggests that this was their daily custom. That's a fact that's pointed out back up in chapter two, verse 46. Uh, The temple was central to Jewish life. Peter and John are going to pray together. It's the hour of prayer. There would have been crowds of people coming and going in the temple, but on their way, they encounter a man who's described as being lame from birth. Now my 13-year-old daughter says that that's me, but um, <laughs> what this means is that he's crippled from birth. All he's known is a disability all throughout his life. Uh, his, he's never been able to walk. Uh, he's never been able to run. All he knows is disability. And so, um, Verse two says that the man was being carried. He was laid daily at the gate of the temple known as the beautiful gate. And really this would have been an ideal spot to beg from those who were coming to the temple in order to worship. Uh, In first century Jerusalem, you could often find beggars at three different locations. Uh, One location was the houses of the rich. In fact, we read about that in Luke chapter 16 where Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus was laid at the rich man's gate where he begged. Uh, Other places uh, beggars could often be found was major thoroughfares along the roadway. But the temple, of all three locations, the temple was optimal because of the crowds who constantly were coming. And it really capitalized on the opportunity to ask for alms from those who wanted to impress God with their generosity those who were coming to worship were more inclined to give to those in need. And you would think that would be so because thoughts of God and thoughts of their fellow neighbors should be foremost in their thinking as they're on their way to worship. So every day of this uh, crippled man's life, this is where he's taken. He's laid at the gate of the temple uh, to beg for alms. Now his name, we don't know his name. It's anonymous to history. His story goes on into the fourth chapter where we read that he was more than 40 years old. And so there's not a lot that we know about his life story, but we can piece together a profile with what we're able to read about this guy. Now I'll show you three things about his profile, a profile of the changed life. The first thing is simply this, this man had a helpless condition. Uh, Write that down in the margin of your Bible. This is a helpless condition that's being described here in Acts chapter 3. And as such, this guy had no hope. Uh, He's helpless. He can't do anything for himself. He's completely dependent upon other people. Physically speaking, this man is in pitiful shape. Verse 2 says he's lame from birth. That means brokenness was all that he knew in life. As a child, he had never known the joys of being able to run, skip, and play with the other children. And now, as a man, he's dependent upon someone else to carry him wherever he wants to go. And I can't think of anything more humiliating for a grown man. Uh, Not one time in his life has he ever been able to stand on his own two feet. Every day of his life, others carried him and laid him at the gate of the temple. He's completely dependent upon someone else. So physically he's in pitiful shape. Uh, Materially he's in pitiful shape. As someone dropped him off at the temple gate, he would spend the remainder of his day begging for alms. Now that word alms there in the text, uh, this particular word comes from another Greek word that means compassion or mercy. It's this idea of showing goodwill toward those who are destitute. Alms would be a tangible mercy. Uh, mercy manifest through a little kindness, a little generosity, a little compassion. That's what the word means. In fact, Jesus often used this word uh, in, in, in the gospels. Matthew chapter nine, verse 13. Jesus said that he'd come uh, for the sick. It's the sick who needed a physician. And he told the Pharisees, he said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Uh, The word mercy there, uh, this is the same root word that this word alms comes from. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 23. uh, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Uh, You tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you've neglected the weightier provision of the law. Justice and mercy. It's the same word there. So asking for alms meant asking for a little material mercy from someone else. A little bit of kindness and generosity from someone else. And so listen, use your imagination for a minute. Uh, In my mind, I can almost see this guy sitting there with maybe a little mat, maybe a cardboard sign and a tin cup. Each passerby potentially could have been someone who would show him a little mercy a little bit of compassion, someone who might extend to him a little bit of tangible grace. And folks, this was all that this guy had to live for every day of his life. This was all that he knew. And you know, all of us are familiar with this kind of thing. We've seen this at various points. Maybe you've seen this at a busy intersection or a bus terminal Um, maybe someone's come up to you in the parking lot of a shopping mall or a shopping center and has begged for a little something from you. How is it that you respond to that? How do you respond to that? Now, I know we need to exercise discernment, and there are people who take advantage of it. But listen, this guy was a guy who had a legitimate need in his life. And don't think for one second there are others out there who are just like him. God help those of us in whom the spirit of the living God dwells to reach out and show a little mercy to those around us. Amen goes right there. I said amen goes right there. So Peter and John, they're going to the temple, and, and listen, they're paying attention. Their eyes are open. They're busy men. They've got places to go, people to see, prayers to offer up, but here's a man who is in a miserable condition and they stop. So physically, he's in pitiful condition. Materially speaking, he's in pitiful condition. But let me tell you something. Spiritually, this guy is in pitiful condition. Because we're told that someone had to carry him every day to the beautiful gate of the temple. That was called the beautiful gate because of its ornate design. There was an ancient Jewish historian named Josephus who said that the beautiful gate of Herod's temple was made of Corinthian brass, which meant that it was very attractive, it was something to see, but it also meant that it was very heavy. And he even said that it took upwards of 20 men to open and close this particular gate. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a a model of Herod's temple, maybe in a study Bible or a chart in a Sunday school class or something like that, but the beautiful gate of the temple would have been to Uh, the eastern part. It was located at the eastern part of the temple complex and really it served as the main entrance. It separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of the women and as such it was this gate that all the Jewish worshipers really had to pass through in order to go inside. And so this guy is really at a strategic spot. This is where they place this guy every day of his life. But let me tell you something, this was as far as this guy could ever go. He could only come to the gate, he could never go inside the gate because being someone who was born with such a serious birth defect, Jewish law didn't permit him to enter. Jewish law didn't permit him to serve. You can read about this in Leviticus chapter 21. The law of Moses specified uh, really the sons of Aaron, uh, the priests, no one who had a blemish was able to draw near whether he be blind or whether he be lame. He was permitted to eat the bread of his God but not go through the veil, not approach the altar all because he has a blemish. God said that he might not profane my sanctuary. Really it was intended to be a, a, a picture of the holiness of God. God is holy and there's this barrier between man and God because of man's sin. So initially this applied to the priests and to the sons of Aaron. But by the time of Herod's temple, by the first century, protocol meant that the lame, the crippled, were kept out of the sanctuary entirely. And so this is why this guy could get no further than outside the beautiful gate. And by the way, you remember Jewish thought uh, often if there was some type of, of, of... Uh, defect or some type of deficiency uh, some type of physical uh, illness or sickness or disease in a person's life Jewish thought often attributed that to the sin of that person's parents which sort of added further reason that the Jews wanted to keep guys like this outside of the temple complex itself so this guy has needs spiritually doesn't he uh, physically, he's in poor shape. Materially, he's in poor shape. Spiritually, he's in poor shape. And, and the impression that we get when we look on his life, it's one of brokenness and alienation. To get anywhere at all, he's dependent upon someone else. To have anything at all, he's dependent upon someone else. And yet other people can only take him so far. Now, I don't wanna spiritualize this passage, but this guy really serves as a fitting microcosm of humanity in general. You say, what do you mean? Well, broken and alienated. These are two words that accurately describe humanity's fallen existence. Means that every single person, every part of man has been corrupted by sin. Spiritually, he's alienated from God. Sin has put up a barrier between man and God, and there's nothing that man can do to overcome that barrier on his own. He can come only so far as the gate of life, but he can't enter in without a Savior. You know, by the way, let me just say this. There are a lot of people who settle for life outside the gate, just outside the gate. There are a lot of people who like to just coat themselves over with a thin veneer of religiosity, just to appear righteous. But there's never really been a change that's ever taken place in their life. They've never truly been converted to Jesus, born again. They've got religion, but they don't really have a relationship with the God of heaven. Their life has never been changed by the power of the gospel. They have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. They may be close to the action on the inside, but they might as well be a million miles away because they're still on the outside. You see, the thing is a religious center is just as lost as an irreligious center. There are no distinctions. You're either inside the gate or you're outside the gate and no matter how hard you try, your problem is that you are spiritually paralyzed by sin. You can do a lot of things. You can talk politics, you can talk economy, you can talk about all the problems in the world but one thing you can't do is you can't walk. Amen. Amen. Wow. You listening to me? You can't, you've got to have God do something for you that you can't do for yourself. You're in need of rescue. Humanity's problem is not that humanity needs greater reform. Humanity's issue is that humanity needs a savior. Humanity needs rescue. It's the problem of original sin. Remember what David said in Psalm 51? He said, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. It's the doctrine of a religion of original sin. The fact that you don't come into this world with a clean slate and somewhere along the way you become a sinner. That's not the doctrine of original sin. Original sin says that you go astray from the womb. You go astray from birth. You come into this world uh, spiritually paralyzed. You come into this world separated, alienated from a holy God because of sin. You don't believe that Just have kids. I'm serious. You know, you you see the seeds of original sin beginning to manifest itself in those toddlers when they're little. I'll tell you something else that'll give you proof of original sin. Road construction on I-40 on Friday at 5.30 p.m. I get in that traffic. Let me tell you something. My sin is apparent to me. It's not something somebody has to convince me of because I know it. That's true of every single person. Every single person from birth, we've gone astray, and we've got to have God do something for us. We've we've got to be rescued. So this guy is in a helpless condition. Now, there's a second thing about his profile, and it's this. He, He had a powerful encounter This man in a helpless condition had a powerful encounter. Verse three says that he saw Peter and John going to the temple, and so he asked to receive alms. And Peter directs his gaze at this guy and says, look at us. Now I know you've encountered beggars at intersections or different places, and if you're not interested in giving them anything, usually your initial response is to look in the opposite direction. You don't want to lock eyes with that person because there's something about that person. If you look in that person's eyes, then you know that that person will know that you saw them and and, and recognize their need, but you're not going to do anything about it. So what is your inclination? It's often, I'm going to just look in the opposite direction and pretend I don't see this person. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't do that as far as you and me are concerned? Peter and John don't do that here. Instead of looking in the opposite direction, Peter fixes his gaze on the guy, he stops what he's doing and he speaks. And, 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 and the guy fixes his attention on Peter and John and he's expecting to receive something from them. He expects to receive something of monetary value but what he gets is of infinite value. Look at what Peter says there in verse number six and I just can't help but love the language of the King James here. Silver and gold have I none but such as I have give I unto thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. The man wanted money, but he needed a miracle. He asked for alms, but he needed legs. Huh? I thought about entitling that message this, the miracle of alms and legs. (laughs) He thought he needed one thing, but he needed something else. He needed life, he needed a miracle. He needed God to reach down in his situation and do something for him that he could not do for himself. He asked for some material mercy but what he receives is spiritual grace. And What Peter lacks in material wealth he more than made up for in spiritual wealth. Uh, He had something far more valuable than money Listen, spiritual riches are far more important than material riches. Jesus said this numerous occasions. He said things like this. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. He said, what does it profit a man if he gained a whole world only to lose his soul? Better to be spiritually rich and materially poor than to be materially rich and spiritually poor. And this is the truth that we often forget. Back in the 12th century, it said that Thomas Aquinas once paid Pope Innocent II a visit at his papal palace there in Rome. And Aquinas was stunned by all of the opulence that he saw on display. And as he went into the chamber where the Pope was, the Pope was counting out this large mound of gold coins. And as Aquinas came in, he said to Thomas, he said, you see, Thomas, the church can no longer say silver and gold have I none. But Aquinas replied, that's true, but neither can she now say rise up and walk. Folks, let me tell you where our power rests, not in the possessions that we acquire for ourselves, but the power rests in the life changing message of Jesus Christ and the power of the living God. That was on display in Peter's life. Let me tell you, he had something to give this beggar, not of monetary value, but he had something of eternal value. And this really illustrates the task that's been given to the church. God has commissioned us for this task of sharing with other people what's been given to us in Jesus Christ. And if something's been given to you in Christ, you've got something to pass on to someone else. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great British preacher, he said this. He said, the church is not here to talk politics, to play music to give philosophical lectures, to produce art, to provide social commentary or psychological treatment. No, the business of the church is to deal with the real problem of men and women. Not to give alms but to offer a cure for man's paralysis. What is that cure but the gospel of Jesus Christ? And that's what makes the church different from any other organization on the planet. Humanity is lost in sin. Man needs the life of God in the soul and the answer is not found in a better environment. It's not simply found in more education or a better economy. Knowledge is not man's problem. Neither is poverty. His problem is sin and paralysis of the soul. He needs the life of God on the inside. He needs to be made right with God. So you look at this guy, his profile, he's he's in pitiful shape. A helpless condition. There's a powerful encounter with Peter and John here. But I want you to notice one final thing. He has a miraculous transformation. (laughs) Aren't you grateful that people in helpless condition can have a powerful encounter that leads to a miraculous transformation? That's what happens right here in this guy's life. Verse 7 says, Peter takes him by the hand, raises his, him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. Immediately. Leaping up, the man stood on his own two feet and began to walk. God doesn't take half measures when it comes to changing lives. This man's paralysis is completely gone. He enters the temple with Peter and John for the first time in his life. And the Bible says he's walking and he's leaping and he's praising God. See, when you meet Jesus, let me tell you something. There's a new walk. There's a new talk. There's a new manner of life and a way of living that's characteristic of you as someone who's encountered the power of God. All this guy could do prior to this was sit and beg. He lived hand to mouth for a little bit of temporary satisfaction. But you see, the thing is, he got something that was out of this world, something that filled the void in his soul, eternal life, a miracle of healing takes place. And by the way, anytime you read of these miracles happening in the New Testament, know that they were always for the purpose of a sign. It was a sign More often than not, miracles often took place in the lives of unbelievers, and the result was that they became believers, and those that were believers, their faith was strengthened. So this miracle really authenticated the ministry and the message of both Peter and John as the apostles of Christ. It's a miracle. You say, does God do this same thing? I believe that God has all power to still heal. I believe that with all of my heart. But let me tell you this, it's no less of a miracle when God uses a doctor to do it or a process of uh, medicine to do it. The greatest need in your life is not physical. The greatest need in your life is spiritual. And let me tell you something, the time is coming when every lame person in Jesus Christ will be able to walk. The time is coming when the dead will, in fact, be raised and will live in a resurrection body with the Lord. You say, I had a loved one, and I prayed for their healing, but God didn't heal them. God took them. God healed them. And God's going to heal you. And God's going to heal me in Jesus Christ because this is the gospel promise and the gospel hope that we live with. (laughs) I just love this story because it really just illustrates the power of God to change the lives of people. Aren't you grateful for the truth of Romans 5, 6? While we were still weak, without strength, When we couldn't stand on our own two feet, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. I mean, when I couldn't stand on my own two feet, Jesus came for me. When I was alienated from God, lost in my sin, Jesus died for me. When worldly alms was all I lived for, Jesus gave grace to me, and he took my sin. And he took my shame all the way into the grave. And then he arose in power and victory. And now he has all authority and all power to change the lives of those who trust in him. And now having been reconciled to him, I know that I'm going to be saved by his endless life. And all of that can be true of you too. But you've got to turn away from your sin and you've got to believe the gospel. That's why Paul could say this in Romans 5, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That barrier now has been torn down in Jesus Christ. No longer do I sit outside the gate begging, but now I've been given access to the Holy of Holies. Through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Listen, I'm crippled no more. Spiritual paralysis is my greatest issue, my greatest need, but Jesus Christ is my only hope and my Savior. And he's addressed that need by forgiving me of my sin and giving me eternal life. (laughs) I can almost see this in my mind. I mean, can can you just realize the fact that for the rest of his life, this beggar is going to have a story to tell. He's going to be a living billboard for the power of God for the rest of his life. In all of his life, he's going to tell. I mean, maybe if he gets married, maybe he has kids, maybe there are neighbors and people that come along for years and say, and he has this story to say, you know something? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see, was crippled, but now I walk, was lame, but now I'm made whole. That is the power of God to change lives. And aren't you grateful for it this morning?